Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Cécile Mitmar. And we are your hosts. Today, we will check in with Dr. Bibi von Montfranz and Dr. Audrey Molendykes to better understand the risk factors for developing venous leg ulcers. But first... EADV Live will host a webcast, New Developments in Pathogenesis and Therapy of Psoriasis with Professor Louis Puig on the 23rd of June at 2 p.m. Central European Summer Time. For more information on how to watch it live and even ask questions to the speaker, go to www.eadv.org under education. And we have some scholarship opportunities coming up. The EADV Honors and Awards Committee offers scholarships consisting of complimentary registration to the Congress and a one-year EADV membership for the 2022 calendar year. So, free entrance to our acclaimed Congress, all of the rest of the great perks of being a member, including full access to the JEADV? Exactly. Applications are due on June 15th. Go to www.eadvcongress2021.org. And now... Dr. Bibi Vamont Franz is a member of the EADV Education Committee. She is passionate about numerous areas in dermatology, but has a particular interest in phlebology and specifically wound healing and deep venous pathology. She is currently the principal educator in Rotterdam in the Erasmus University. Right now we're going to have a listen as she interviews Dr. Audrey Molendykes on the subject of venous leg ulcers, and we'll catch up with her afterwards. So hello to you all. Um, I'm Bibi van Montfrans, and I would like to introduce to you Audrey Meulendijks uh, for this podcast. And uh, so Audrey, um, we have known each other now for a few years and you are a dermal therapist from uh, originally uh, and also an epidemiologist. Uh, and currently you do full, almost full-time research and recently you have uh, defended your PhD thesis on chronic venous disease. So Audrey, really nice to have you here uh, today to have this podcast on phlebology, on a phlebology topic. And um, yeah, you've published an article in, uh, in our journal. Could you describe to us uh, the, let, let's say, the characteristic patient that is described in your article. First of all, thank you for having me. And I can, of course, describe uh, the typical patients with a venous leg ulcer, uh, because we also did a qualitative study and, and I had the time to speak to 11 patients for about an hour or so. Uh, and I think to summarize the patients, uh, they mostly didn't know that the chronic venous disease was the cause of the venous leg ulcer. So it started with a small wound and well, nothing going on and they just kept going like they used to do. And then the wound get larger, gets larger and it starts to hurt and it starts to itch and there is leakage of fluid and it starts to smell. Uh, people get embarrassed because of these symptoms. Quality of life decreases, of course, it has impact on a physical level, on a social level, on a psychological level. And then uh, finally they start seeking healthcare. 
and then they get introduced as the venous like ulcer patients. Uh, and is this patient like, let's say, an elderly patient? Uh, well, that different. It's mostly elderly patients, but there are also patients in their 40s, 50s. So not, not just the elderly. Okay. And uh, can you say anything about incidence of venous leg ulcers? It uh, doesn't have a very large incidence. Uh, when you look at the varicose veins, they have a very large incidence of about, well, up to a half of the uh, of the population, uh, but the venous leg ulcers are, uh, I thought it was 1.3 percent, yeah, and it increases with age. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, not that common, but it has a large impact on the quality of life, as you have uh, described now, to have this venous leg ulcer. So, it is very important to prevent this from, you know, uh, developing. And so um, and that was also the reason I selected this article, because it is, uh, for me personally, a question as a dermatologist, should I be involved, for example, in lifestyle intervention? Should I do uh, be worried about preventive medicine or should I just cure my patients uh, from their leg ulcers or other dermatological disease? So that is why it's really interesting, this, this article of you, because you did a, a systematic review uh, to uh, check uh, what were the risk factors to develop a venous leg ulcer. And the risk factors were not predefined uh, in your search stream. Mm -hmm. So, well, you found like deep vein reflux and deep vein thrombosis as risk factors, which was of course not so surprising. Um, were there findings, uh, risk factors that you that surprised you? Uh, yes, I think it was the the arterial hypertension that surprised me a little. Um, if, when you think of it, of the working mechanisms, if the arterial uh, hypertension is present, then there might also be hypertension on other places, so the venous hypertension. Um, and arterial diseases are also connected to venous diseases in other studies. They've made these connections also with heart diseases. So it's all, well, actually the whole blood system is connected somehow. And that was pointed out in this systematic review that arterial hypertension was also a risk factor for the development of a venous leg ulcer. Well, uh, that was also, you know, surprising to me. And my, my father is an internal medical doctor and he always think that hypertension is much more, you know, serious uh, than, than venous uh, increased pressures. But now I can tell him that we are much more connected than, than <laughs> he thought. Um, yeah. So um, uh, you found other risk factors like uh, obesity and uh, decreased mobility mm -hmm. to, uh, for the development of a venous leg ulcer. Um, can you explain to us how, how obesity and decreased mobility may lead to a venous ulcer? Yeah, that was a, um, a kind of a difficult question because in the systematic review, we saw that it's mostly measured by body mass index and uh, physical activity is measured, measured in all kinds of ways. It's uh, walking, it's uh, sports, it's uh, the mobility of the ankle, range of ankle motion. It gets measured in all different ways. And that's why we couldn't perform a meta-analysis because, well, the data was not feasible for that. Um, but uh, when you look at obesity, and it's especially uh, the abdominal obesity, it has two different pathways. Uh, 
eventually there is an increased intra-abdominal pressure, which prevents the outflow of the venous blood. Um, and therefore increases the venous pressure in the lower extremities. And the, another pathway is through uh, inflammation. Oh, and can you tell us a little bit about inflammation? Because that I didn't know so much. Well, if uh, the adipose tissue increases, uh, there is also an increase in inflammatory factors. And these inflammatory factors affect the endothelial cells. So it gets really on the on a small cell level, uh, but eventually that can lead to uh, venous symptoms like uh, edema or lipodermatosclerosis or even a venous leg ulcer without there being a venous reflux or a thrombosis in the larger veins. Okay, that's, that's, that's an interesting uh, pathway indeed, uh, which I wasn't aware of so much. Um, earlier, I heard you saying that the uh, body mass index may have been normal, but then the abdominal circumference was 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 uh, increased. And and personally, I never measure this abdominal circumference. I am already proud. I have an app, and so I, I uh, um, determine the the body mass index of my patients. But uh, can you say about something about this? Yes, uh, in another study, uh, we studied the uh, waist circumference in relation of, uh, well, more advanced chronic venous disease. Uh, and it appeared, we also measured the BMI. And when we uh, compared the BMI with the, the waist circumference, we found uh, patients having abdominal obesity with a normal BMI or with a BMI that indicated overweight, but not obesity. So, and since the abdominal pressure is more important in developing chronic venous disease, it would be better to measure uh, the waist circumference. You already have the measuring tape to measure the legs, so you can take the waist in as well. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just really thinking now of my daily practice, if it, that would be feasible. And I have to admit, I measure the leg circumference in my post-thrombotic patients. Mm -hmm. um, so then I can easily do an extra measurement. However, I have, well, I'm, I'm not so always measuring the, um, the well, the, the sizes in my edema patients or lymph edema patients, which in fact I, I should maybe. So this is, um, well, I will take this into account for, for my daily practice. I think it's also something you can, you can train to see Okay. Uh, of course, when, when you have a very slim patient, patients, you can see that there is no abdominal uh, obesity. Yeah. But when there's doubt. Check it out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's a good advice. Um, and then you were also talking about the physical activity and in the different studies, uh, it was uh, measured uh, in different ways. What would you advise uh, us to do? Um, you know, should we ask how many steps? What should we ask our patients or what should we do to, to have an impression on how physically active they are? Well, if it's a younger patient, most of most of people have mobile phones and they or they have the activity trackers. So you could ask how many steps they uh, they walk on a day. Um, but there is also uh, the Civic. It's a questionnaire for quality of life. But it also includes questions on walking stairs or standing for long periods of times or um, 
uh, going around during the day, like the daily activity. So that would be a questionnaire patients could maybe fill out in the waiting room and that, that gives you an indication on their complaints and on their physical activity. And of course, watch the patients enter the room. Oh, what do you mean? Watch how a patient stands, walks, Ah. sits down uh, well if you look at the range of ankle motion uh, mostly mm -hmm. when a patients walk up to you you can already see if they have difficulties walking or if they gradually walk in yeah that's 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 an, a good advice uh, as well um, certainly um, and so you were talking about questionnaires and of course as dermatologists we have limited time uh, could we not just ask an open question? So like, how active are you during the day? Would that not, would that not suffice? I think it would give a, a range of answers that are not always representable for the active or, or the actual physical activity. Um, what we saw in our study is if you ask, uh, how active are you? Uh, people would grade themselves on a, on a scale of one to 10 and they would all of the patients would grade seven or eight. Okay. But if you specifically ask questions like how many hours do you walk or uh, do you have trouble standing or trouble uh, walking stairs or that kind of more specific questions, you would get answers that uh, indicated that they did have trouble. So an eight was not really representable for their physical activity. Yes, I, I do recognize that. Because uh, so I asked my patients, so do you move around? And yes, yes, I move around in my house. Do you ever exit your house? No, no, I never. I do not do my shopping yeah. anymore. <laughs> so they think they move around. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So okay. So your advice is to ask really specific questions if you want to know something for sure, uh, or have a more detailed impression. Um, and so, uh, Audrey, can you say, uh, tell us uh, what would be, uh, given the results of your studies, uh, you found different um, uh, risk factors for developing a venous leg ulcer. So what would be your advice uh, to us dermatologists in daily practice? What should we do with this knowledge? Uh, I think the most important is the lifestyle risk factors, because mostly when you see a patient, there's always a duplex exam. So the venous status is already checked and is already treated. Um, I think the, uh, what this study showed is that there are also other indications. So a high blood pressure, but that's mostly known with patients from primary care. Mm -hmm. um, but the, risk factors uh, like the abdominal obesity and the mobility that would be something to consider like I said you can measure the waist really easily or see how a patient walks in and if you uh, get an indication that it might not be good so that there is abdominal obesity or that there is um, a reduced physical activity uh, refer the patients you don't have to do everything yourself you can use like a, a dietitian or a physical therapist uh, who can measure this further and treat it yeah so i have discovered uh, that it is really worthwhile if you maybe know some dietitians in your area or know some uh, physiotherapist in your area um and that you can you know really refer your patients to to you know the, the proper addresses um 
Yes, indeed. And um, in, in Rotterdam, where I work, we also have like, you know, healthy lifestyle programs and um, people, they like to participate. So, yes. And, and, and it's a little well, bit of extra attention that they also like. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course, yes. And but this is also something that we may not uh, um well let's say motivational interviewing is something it's a skill that we are not trained in so well because it is also you have to motivate your patients to to eh, to do something about their lifestyle yeah like i said you don't have to do everything yourself because um well i mostly compare having a venous leg ulcer with having a diabetic foot foot ulcer it's also a chronic wound that's a result of an underlying disease and for diabetes, there are so many health programs that focus on more physical activity and losing weight. So it's not that uh, you have to invent new interventions. They are already there. You just have to refer to the right places. Yeah, and that holds true also for our obese psoriasis patients that have uh, comorbidity risks and, um, and so on. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true, uh, Audrey. Um, so you have also studied what is missing in our current care uh, as doctors. Can you explain a little bit about, uh, about this? Uh, yes, we included patients uh, with uh, the whole range of chronic venous disease. So from the varicose veins or after uh, uh, thrombosis uh, and patients with edema, uh, skin changes or venous leg ulcers. And we found that uh, a lot of patients were treated in the past. So they had their varicose veins removed. And after that, they were never seen again because they were told if you experience more uh, signs or symptoms, then you should come back. Okay. Um, but it doesn't stick with the patients. They don't remember the signs and symptoms. And we saw in the study, and it's also uh, known from other studies, that not all patients experience complaints as a complaint. So if you ask, do you have complaints? They say no. If you ask, do you have uh, tired legs or a heavy feeling in your legs? They answer yes. Okay. So it's, again, uh, asking more specific questions uh, and following up the patients. Because uh, I think in the majority, it was about 80% of the patients who had uh, treatment in the past. They had a new site of reflux in either the great saphenous vein or the small saphenous vein. So um, the patients that don't remember so well, maybe uh, if they have, uh, are, were just informed one, once or twice about their disease. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that we could do? I mean, if the patients are lost to follow up, um, well, how should they be informed? Yeah, I think it's important to create uh, more common knowledge that varicose veins in most people, it's stays varicose veins and there is no progression but in some people there is progression to chronic venous disease and it should be more widespread what the signs and symptoms are and if you look up signs and symptoms you always get the most uh the most severe cases of the, uh, the lipodermatal sclerosis or the most severe cases of atrophy blanche and, and patients don't recognize themselves in these severe cases but if they have like a few white spots or a few dark spots they don't see that as oh this is 
from my varicose veins, this is chronic venous disease. So I think it would be important as dermatologists to show patients what the signs and symptoms are. So they recognize it and they seek healthcare themselves also. Yeah, that's, I think, really important message, which we can also uh, broaden to other diseases. And that if we make uh, information uh, material leaflets for patients, that we should um, underscore the early signs, signs and symptoms of deterioration or when to seek help and not the most severe uh, uh, examples. Okay, so um, Audrey, I think uh, you gave a really nice summary of, uh, of your systematic review and how this uh, has implications for our current practice. Is there any last message you would like to give to, to, to the EADV members and the, 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 the people that listen to this podcast? I think the most important message is to will spread the knowledge and especially among patients that varicose veins can progress and what the signs and symptoms are. So uh, patients recognize themselves in having chronic venous disease and not just varicose veins. And then also the recognition of the lifestyle risk factors. Well, thank you so much, Audrey, uh, for, for this nice uh, interview. Um, and thank you so much for, for listening to the, to the participants. Thank you for having me. And now we're back here with Dr. Bibi von Montfranz. Now, there are a lot of topics you could have chosen for this episode of the podcast. Why did you choose this topic? Um, well, phlebology is one of my main uh, areas of interest. That's why. I see a lot of patients with post-traumatic syndrome. I see a lot of patients with varicose veins. But the patients with leg ulcers, I care really a lot about them because they're often so much in pain and uh, they are really having experiencing, uh, uh, well, a bad impact on their quality of life of their leg ulcer. So I think it's important to, to have uh, some attention for these, these patients. Why do you feel it's important to promote phlebology in dermatology? And is it a growing field? What I think is that we as dermatologists are really good in taking care of patients with a phlebological problem, um, for example, leg ulcers, uh, because we can recognize as no other doctor the different clinical signs of dermatological diseases. Um, and so we can make a really good diagnosis in patients with leg ulcers. So I think it is maybe not a growing field, but it is really an important field. And in addition, there are also a lot of wound care nurses and they do a lot of very good work. However, making a proper diagnosis, that's where it starts. And that is, I think, really up to a medical specialist um, and the dermatology dermatologist is really uh, uh, well, well um, trained in doing this. To flip the script a little bit, it's your turn to answer a question you just asked. If you could give a message to the dermatologists in our audience all over the world, what would you say? So I think it is um, really important to, to listen well to your patients, to the story, because that gives a lot of clues 
And then also look really well, inspect your patient uh, with a leg ulcer. Look at both legs, uh, inspect the entire skin. Um, and this will help you a lot making a proper diagnosis. So first a diagnosis and then start treatment. Dr. Von Manfranz, thank you for being with us today and thank you for moderating the discussion with Dr. Molendijks. You're welcome. Of course, the research discussed today can be found in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venerology. Though you can find free access and open access articles, EADV members benefit greatly by having access to all articles and content. We would like to thank Dr. Van Manfranz and Dr. Molendijks for sharing their knowledge with us. And we would like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast and find value in it, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. So, until the next episode, take care of your skin.